Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. If you've been attending our church for any period of time, like the last couple months, you would know that we've been in a series we're calling DNA. And really what this series is about is the character, the nature, the identity of who we are as a church. We've defined eight things that we're focusing on right now. And we've been just talking about what it means to be who we are as a church family because churches, like individual people, are different. Like you could go to any church in this community today, and as you walked in the doors, you would be faced with a number of similarities to what you'd experience here and a number of things that would be very different. Uh, You know, they'd probably sing songs they would probably um, have somebody get up and speak and talk like I'm doing. People would, you know, shake your hands or be ministry for children or something in the nursery. There'd be common denominators, but every church has kind of a flavor. It has something that identifies it, unique values, unique core ideas and values. And those are some of the things we've been concentrating on. And I want to continue on that theme today. And... and um, I, I want you to know that I guess one, one of the reasons we're doing this is so you can say, that fits me, that's where my heart's at, or you can say, hey, maybe, you know, maybe that's not who I am, maybe I, I would fit somewhere else better, but so you can understand that, and then if you have this sense, like God's calling me here, and this is a good match for me and my family or my, my individual life, then I would invite you to join us, bring your time, your talents your treasures to the table and mix them in with us and help us become the people God's created us to be and help us fulfill the mission he's given us. Amen? So let me just go through really quickly, uh, review I guess you could say, what it is we've already covered and, and the eight DNA core value ideas that we've been talking about. The first one is that we are a Jesus-centered church. If you want to know what Christianity is about, if you boiled it down to its essence, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about Him, the person that He is, and the mission that He accomplished and continues to accomplish through His people. If you ever wanted to know what the Bible's about, if you take this book, this is actually 66 books. I don't know if you realize that. It's 66 books in one book, written over about 1,500 years by over 40 authors, And there's a a common thread. Theologians call it the scarlet thread of redemption. There's a a common thread that starts in Genesis and weaves itself all the way through the Bible, ending in the Revelation. And that common thread is the person of Jesus. In the Old Testament, he's seen in types, shadows, and symbols. And in the New Testament, he comes on the scene and we see him. So that's the first thing. Secondly is that we're a scripture-following church. We believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And when God wanted to speak to humanity and reveal Himself, when He wanted to unveil His person, His plan, His character, His Spirit breathed upon people, led people to write down their journey with Him and their experiences with Him and what He said to them. Thirdly, that we are a Holy Spirit welcoming church. We believe the Holy Spirit is still moving throughout the earth performing wonders and signs, miracles, changing lives, amen, Amen. healing addicts, 
broken bodies, broken minds, broken hearts. We believe also, uh, another one is that we're a presence-seeking church, that we're hungry for God's presence. And what, what I mean by that, uh, just to kind of clarify that, is both the Hebrew word in the Old Testament and the Greek word in the New Testament for presence is the word for face, right? So we're people who are seeking the face of God. And when you look at someone's face, what are you looking for? You're looking for response. You're looking in their eyes to see how they look back at you. You're looking for their expressions, whether those expressions be of joy, of pain, of sorrow, of anger, whatever they may be. And when the Bible speaks of the presence of God, it speaks of his face, those things that he unveils about his character and his nature. And then we are an expressive worship church. We believe that God has given us a body, a mind, a spirit, a soul. All of our being is to worship him and love him. And so we are to love God with the whole being. Hands were given to be lifted. Bodies were given to express our, our, des- our, our desire, our yearning, our hunger for God. That we are an authentic church. That um, we're trying. Now listen, we don't do it perfectly. But we're really trying to be real. We don't want to put on fake religious airs. Honestly, we don't, we, we, we're not presenting ourselves as though we got our act together. Come join us so you can be part of the company that's got their act together. Because we know something about human beings right at their root, right at their core, and that is that people are messy, and people are broken, and people need rescue. That's why Jesus Christ came to the earth. So, you know, if you're here checking us out and you're wondering, is that one of those churches where everybody acts like they have their act together, but they're actually engaging in a lot of private secret stuff that's shameful? You need to know, first and foremost, no, we're trying really hard not to act like we have our act together because we don't. None of us, me included. We're not superstar Christians. We're just people trying to love Jesus together, and we're messing up a lot. And if you hang around for a while, you're going to find out we're messing up. We're falling down. We're skinning our knees, but we're getting back up. And that's the gospel. The gospel is not about people that got their act together. It's about people that fall down and get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up. And you can say that a thousand times, and you're just getting started. Amen. And that we are a people-reaching church. That's what I want to talk about today a people-reaching church, and lastly, that we're a disciple-making church, that we're here to help people become apprentice followers of Jesus, to learn of the way, Jesus Christ. Amen. So to get into a people-reaching church today, I want to start with a great story. In uh, November of 2010, a wedding party was happening in Glenelg, Australia. Um, What happened was really interesting. Um, A wedding party was unexpectedly called into action right after the ceremony. While they were posing for pictures on a scenic ledge, a woman unrelated to the wedding fell into the water and started drowning. Can you imagine? Dressed in his tuxedo, the best man jumped in and brought the woman back toward shore. Then the bride, I love this, the bride, a trained nurse, waded into the water and started administering CPR. By the time the surf life-saving volunteers had arrived, the woman had regained consciousness. But according to one safety official, the victim was very lucky that the bridal party was there and they acted quickly and got her to the shallows. After the daring rescue operation, the drenched but heroic best man and the bride happily rejoined the wedding reception and continued with the festivities. 
In some ways, this unusual event serves as a great image for the calling of every local church. We're dressed up for the party. We're celebrating worship. We're singing to God. We're here to worship Him. But at the same time, we're also prepared to dive into mission, even when it's inconvenient and when it's dangerous. Worship and mission. Loving God and loving others, right? Vertical, horizontal. That is the essence of the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So we're going vertical, we're going horizontal, we're loving God, loving neighbors, and praising and serving. These combinations aren't opposites. They form the dual nature of our calling as the church. The bride, I love that story, the bride, which is in the Bible, the church, the bride, helps to save and restore people that are drowning in sin and death. And that's what we're called to do. So I want to start by lifting up the pattern, the model, the one, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want you to see that Jesus calls us, all of you in this room, to, f- to follow him and to reach people. Look at Luke 19, verse 10, in the message paraphrase. Look what it says. It says, For the Son of Man came to find and restore the lost. The Son of Man came to find and restore the lost. The story of human history, the story of the Bible, is simply that we are broken and we are lost. Sin has created a chasm between us and God, and we need God to intervene and find us and rescue us and restore us. This word here in the text, restore, is the Greek word sozo. And sozo means to save, rescue, make whole, heal, and restore. Now this is important because we don't really like as human beings to believe that we're lost. In fact, many skeptics, many people that don't follow Christianity and, or, or are not yet at the point of belief or maybe you know, atheists or agnostics, people that are minimum skeptics, maybe way over here on the jaded or cynical side, many times the idea that they're lost and they needed a Savior, that's offensive. I don't need no Jesus or anybody else to come and get me. I'm fine where I'm at. I'm my own Lord, I'm my own master of my destiny in my life. I don't need somebody to rescue me, and I can, I can see where that would come from. Until life gets a hold of you, until you experience the reality of life. And I know a lot of people who are skeptics in Jesus, but who would say, yeah, I've felt lost at times. I've been down roads where I got lost. I lost my way. I got really messed up whether it was an addiction or whether they got sucked into some kind of drama in relationships or whether it was just life is hard and they they had losses, they had deaths, they had pain, whatever it may be, every one of us have those moments in life when we realize we're lost. And what we don't understand is that that's a gift from God. At those moments when we're vulnerable and we realize, I don't know how to do this thing called life, those are, the, those are little gifts from God to remind us that we can't save or rescue ourselves. We need someone stronger than us, outside of us, wiser than us, better than us. Now, Jesus did that. He came to find and restore the lost. But here's the interesting thing. He calls us to do the same. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to do the same. Look at 
Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. This is in the New Living Translation. Notice what it says. It says, One day, as Jesus was walking, not locking, walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for, for a living. So Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Do any of you ever have times when you're reading the Bible, when you look at it and you just think, you know, you're, you're being honest. You get out of your spiritual mindset, right? Because a lot of times when we read the Bible, we kind of get spooky spiritual. You know what I mean by that? It's like, whoa, we expect, you know, light to come off of it and we get kind of weird. And we don't realize the Bible is actually very real, practical, right? So we're opening the Bible and we're reading about Jesus here. And you really kind of read between the lines and think about what we're reading. And what strikes you is how weird this is. Think about it. You're at Walmart. Some dude walks by. Follow me. And I'll teach you how to fish for people. And you're like, security? Right? This guy's a weirdo. So you can imagine... How different it must have been for these common men. These are laborers. These are fishermen. And they're out in their day. They're laboring. They're doing the thing that they do to take care of their families. And a dude walks by and says, follow me. And I'll make you fish for people. And you know they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Fish for people? Weird. But... Something reached out. His words contained power and life in them. They were compelling. And they reached out and took a hold of these men's hearts. And they fall. It says they left their nets and followed him. Think of how strange that is. How powerful that is. And, and then I go, I guess it's not so weird. How many of you in this room are following Jesus? And at some point in your life, you heard that voice too. I remember when I did. I'll never forget being compelled by a voice that said, come and follow me. Maybe he didn't say it quite like that, but I knew that I knew that I knew in my bones, in my marrow, I knew God is real. Oh my goodness, I've heard his voice and it shook me inside. And for the first time in my life, I actually feel like I know why I'm alive. And I have to follow. Amen. And that's a powerful thing when the call of God comes to you and compels you to follow. And he says, I'll make you fishers of people. So to be a Christian disciple is to follow Jesus. And if we follow Jesus, we're going to learn how to fish for people. And, and a lot of us are good with the first part. Yeah, I, I, I'm following Jesus. But when we hear fish for people, we immediately seize up. Anybody get freaked out? Some of you have grown up in the church and the word evangelism might as well be a four-letter word, right? Seriously, it's like, what? Evan or outreach or witnessing or preaching and suddenly we have visions of our, in our mind of a guy standing on a corner, some obnoxious loudmouth guy with a bullhorn telling people to repent or they're going to hell or somebody wearing a sandwich board, the end is near, Right? And you're like, really? 
or somebody knocking on a door. And listen, if somebody feels called to do that, I don't want to disparage them. But the reality is, is those kind of antics, which it's often antics, keep everyday followers of Christ away from sharing Jesus because they think that's what it looks like. It's a twisted and distorted image. What it looks like for you and me is where do you live? Where do you work? Who do you interact with? Who are the people in your circle? Build relationships with them like you normally would in life and wait for opportunities to tell them the hope that's in you. Tell your story. Tell them how God has rescued you. Ask them if you can pray for them. Tell them you're, you are praying for them. And then they're like, no, I'm not into that religion stuff. I'm not into that Christianity. I'm against organized religion. Jesus freaks are weirdos. Christians I know are hypocrites. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, but it's cool. Whatever. I'm praying for you. And over time, what happens is life affords opportunities. And in those opportunities, you just love people and you serve them. And they'll ask questions when the time is right. And you share it. See, that's what it looks like. But it's part of what we're called to do. Every one of us in this room are called to fish for people. To use every opportunity. What pond, what lake, what ocean are you near? Where is your circle of influence? Maybe, maybe you're home a lot, or maybe you're in a situation where you're raising babies up, and you're like, I don't get to interact with people. Well, the first thing is you've got those littles, and those littles are your disciples. So you start with them, right? But then you have other relationships that come into your life. When those opportunities come, you seize the day. You go with it. Does that make sense? Hello? Anybody alive in this room? Still breathing? Okay, I just want to make sure you took a breath. All right, secondly, why does Jesus want us to be a people-reaching church? Matthew 9, 35 through 38, one of my favorite texts in the scripture. And um, I've preached on this in the past before. I've preached on this section of the Bible. It's always really impacted me. Look at it with me. It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Just a couple of things real quick before I get into what I want to share with you. The first thing I want you to notice is it says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. Now, if you live in eastern Washington, in Moses Lake or some of the smaller communities around here, not, not in every case, but most of you that are in this room probably like small town living. And when you think about those people, you know, the wet-siders, or people that live in big cities, you're like, big cities, ugh. right? My goodness, I don't want to live there, and, you know, people are crazy over there. Or maybe you grew up in bigger cities, and you're here now, and you're like having a hard time adjusting. Where's the music scene? Where's the culture? Where... I can't go to concerts. What, what, what is going on? It's podunk around here. This is backwater. What is going on with people over here, right? And that's the way people, people get into this city versus small town, right? Urban versus rural. They get into these mentalities. And they don't realize that God loves it all. I love it says Jesus went to the cities and the villages. Villages are small. Cities are big. Urban centers, culture, all these things going on. He went throughout all of them because there's a common denominator between cities and villages, and that is people. People. 
And he loves people. He doesn't care where they live. He loves people. He loves you. And so that's, that's just beautiful to me. It, he didn't have prejudices that kept him from going to difficult places. Amen? And then he taught and he demonstrated the power of the gospel by doing what? By healing diseases and afflictions. Let's go on with verse uh, 36. And when he saw the crowds, this is really what I'm going to hone in on. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were, were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, you can imagine, so, so, so get the picture in your mind. Jesus is looking out at the crowds and he's moved with compassion. He notices these people are harassed and helpless. They're beat down. I'm going to get into these words in a minute. And he turns to his disciples and he kind of puts it in their lap. He says, the harvest is plentiful, guys, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So breaking this text down, he taught and he demonstrated the power of this gospel and he healed everybody who had diseases and afflictions. I just want to talk about those two words for a minute. Disease here means physical illness, sickness, or disease. So it's, you know, everything from bacterial or, or viral or maybe, you know, they, they got a, a disease that was debilitating and they were able, unable to walk or they were blind or deaf, but whatever disease they had, it was physical. It was a physical ailment. But this word affliction is an interesting word. It's a Greek word, which, which the root of it means weakness. And it means a disease, a debility, an infirmity could also apply to physical, emotional, mental weakness or disease. See, oftentimes when we think of Jesus healing the sick and doing miracles, we just think of the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the dead being raised. But we don't think of the fact that Jesus also healed broken minds and broken hearts. He cared for every affliction. He wants the whole human whole. Spirit, soul, and body. He wants you right with Jesus, yes. He wants you right with his Father, but more than that, he wants to restore you. He wants to bring you into the biblical concept of shalom, which means peace and wholeness and rightness with God and your fellow man. Amen? So he's trying, he, I mean, not trying, he's out to restore us, our whole being. And then it says, he saw the crowds with a vision of heaven, and this Greek word saw, it describes more than merely noticing an object. It could also be translated, he perceived them, he paid attention to them, he experienced them, and he understood them. He looked deeply into the people and noticed their true state and their need through his own father's eyes. Jesus' vision of the people is what motivated him. And this is my challenge to us today. How do we see people? How do you look at people? You see, when Jesus looked at people, he saw a crowd, like at a basketball game or a football game, you see, you know, kind of that, almost like a faceless crowd. But then he, he honed in, and he went face to face, and he looked at each person, and he had the ability to look at them and read them, 
to perceive their life and to care deeply about them and to love them in that moment. He recognized the individual value, the beauty, that each of them were the poema of God, the poem, the masterpiece, the artwork of the Father. And as he looked at them, he perceived their need, their brokenness, their woundedness, how sin had ravaged them, their addictions, their broken relationships. He saw it all and he cared deeply and he was moved. The scripture says he was moved with compassion. It wasn't just a faceless crowd. These were people. These were human beings. And this is why this is important. It's important because we live in the time when because of all of the anger of our time, the division of our time, the politicization of our time, of everything, Social media and media in general is dividing our world up into groups and us versus them. It's breaking our world up into you're the good guys, they're the bad guys. And so what happens is we begin to dehumanize people. We begin to look at them as a little bit lower or lesser or not quite the human that we are. And Jesus cut through all that. And he got down to the essence of their humanity. You see... Every human being has dignity and value intrinsically. That means built into the essence of who they are, down to their DNA, because they are human. And human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. And so we have to make sure that we don't let our time shape our thinking so that we begin to look at our world through the eyes of us versus them. And we determine that some people, because of their political stand, or because of their race, or their ethnicity, or whatever it may be, are less human in our eyes, and therefore less deserving of love and respect and value. That doesn't mean you can't challenge ideas. That doesn't mean you can't have conversations and debates about things that are right and wrong and even morality and those things. It's not being judgmental to talk about those issues. Ethics and morality are important, but you never disparage the value of the individual. People are people are people. You know, I've had a chance to go to a number of places around the world and be around a number of ethnicities. And the thing that always strikes you is how common... It is to be human, how alike we are. I mean, I'll look at cultural differences. They might sing things differently or act differently or eat different foods or they have you know, different customs you need to be careful of and aware of. But I'm going to tell you something. In their essence, they want love. They want community. They want value. They want a sense of purpose. Human beings are the same. And we have to see each other that way. Amen. We have to see with the eyes of Jesus. I'm going to tell you a quick story, a couple stories. The first story was I was a brand new Christian. I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area. I lived about 30 miles south of San Francisco in an area called Burlingame, San Mateo, Foster City, right around there. And as I was living there, I, I came to Christ while I was there, and I, I had a radical conversion, and a, a friend of mine from Southern California moved in and became a roommate. And he was a really strong believer. He'd been a believer for longer. He was kind of discipling me. And uh, one day, we, neither one of us had to work. And we said, hey, we're going to just kind of take a tour of the Bay Area. So we jumped in my car and we drove up to the area known as Wine Country, Napa Valley. We went to Napa Valley and Sonoma uh, area. And we went all around that area. And then as we were coming back to where we lived, we came all along the eastern side of the San Francisco Bay called the Oakland area. Oakland, and we crossed the, what's known as the Oakland-San Francisco Bay Bridge. 
It's a giant bridge. It's not the Golden Gate Bridge. That goes up to Sausalito, but it's over here east to west. This giant bridge, and it's two-layered. One, one layer of traffic goes into the city. The other comes out of the city. It's like this. And, uh, and anyway, we were driving, coming into the city at nighttime, and I looked over, and I saw the lights of the city, and I was admiring how beautiful the skyline was. And all of a sudden, I hear my friend sitting next to me in the car. I hear him weeping. I'm like, what? What's going on, bro? Are you okay? He's over there crying. You okay? What's going on? And he said, I was just looking at the city, and I felt the burden of God in my heart for all the people in that city, not only that are perishing, but the broken state of their lives. And I remember thinking, gosh, I don't have a heart like that. And right at that minute, I prayed, Lord, give me a heart for people like that. I want to have compassion for broken, lost people. And so that night, I'm not kidding you, that night I had a dream. It's a long, in-depth dream, and I won't go into it, but when I, I woke out of that dream, you know, breathing heavy and crying and going, oh God, oh God, save them. And in the dream, I saw destruction coming to the city and that I was right in the middle of it. And I was rescuing people, right? And, and, and I began to weep and I began to cry. And I, I said, God, give me a heart for people. And I woke up out of that dream, weeping for people, that God would restore them. And then about two or three years later, I was down in Southern California. I was in Orange County. And I was just driving down the road, minding my own business. I was doing a sales representative job with a company. And, um, and I came to a stop sign, just a stop sign. I was gonna turn left onto this main road off of a side road. I pulled up to this the stop sign, and a man crossed the road in front of me. One single man, didn't know anything about him, never saw him in my life, never saw him again. And as I looked at him, my eyes opened, and I began to see him and feel for him what God saw and what God felt for him. I saw him with the eyes that Jesus saw the crowd with. My prayer was being answered. And I remember as I looked at him, I grabbed the steering wheel, and I'm weeping. And I'm praying for him, God, please. Whatever he's going through in his life, whatever's happening to him, please, Lord, rescue him. Get him, save him, touch him. Because he crossed really fast. I had to go. I had cars behind me, so I just pulled out there. You know, I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? At that moment, I didn't sense, and I've stopped before, but I didn't sense that I was supposed to stop, run to him and say, repent, please repent. I didn't sense that. I just felt God's heart for him. You see, Jesus wants to change the way we look at people because we interact with people every day and we don't even acknowledge them. God wants us to change in that area and care. Amen? You still with me? I'm finishing up. We jokingly have said around here for years that I'm coming in for a landing. I'm just going to circle the airport a few times. Okay, so here we go. Jesus saw the crowds with the vision of heaven and he was motivated and moved by compassion. And that word means to feel deeply or viscerally, to yearn, to be moved emotionally in the inward parts, to take action and do something. See, here's the difference between mere pity and compassion. Pity goes, oh, poor people. Man, that's rough. Compassion says, oh, what do you want me to do, God? What do you want me to do about it? That's compassion. That's what moved Jesus when it came to people. He was moved with compassion. And he had compassion on people because they were harassed and helpless. That word harassed, this is interesting. It means to skin something, to flay it, 
to lacerate it. In the New Testament, it's used as a metaphor, meaning to harass, trouble, or to weary. Think of this. It's the idea maybe of, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts. You ever go through life and you feel like all day long, all week long, you're being cut up being cut up with words, cut up with circumstances. Life's just cutting you. You're getting little lacerations, little cuts. It's wearing you out. You're bleeding from everywhere. You're losing virtue. You're, you're losing life. And you come to a point where you need to be healed. That's the picture in the mind of life just kind of cutting you up. And then they were helpless. That means to throw or to cast, to hurl, to scatter, to disperse. And when I read this, I thought, that sounds demonic. That sounds satanic. There are forces at work in our world to cut you up, lacerate you, slice you up, beat you down, hurl you down, throw you down. And there's an entire society like that out there. People that need the healing touch of Jesus. And they're cut up and lacerated and broken and they need someone to come in with hope. Amen? And Jesus perceived they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he wanted to take action and do something about that. He perceived the greatness of the harvest and he was provoked by the lack of laborers. He looks out at all of them. It's like there's too many, too many. Hey guys, look at them. Look at them all. They need intervention. They need shepherds. The harvest is huge. It's plentiful, but the laborers are few. Come on, let's pray. And that's what he did. Look at Matthew 9, 36 and 37 in the message, or through 38. It says, when he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. So confused and aimless, they were like sheep with no shepherd. What a huge harvest, he said to his disciples. How few workers on your knees and pray for harvest hands. And then you know what happened? In the next chapter, remember, there are no chapter divisions in the Bible naturally. It wasn't written with chapter divisions. We inserted those later in order to be able to give, you know, addresses to sections of Scripture, right? But the next verse in chapter 10 says that Jesus chose 12 and he sent them out. Think about that. Pray for laborers. Pray for harvest workers. Oh, by the way, God's answering your prayer, guys. You're it. And that's what he does in our life too. Because it's not good enough to just pray. But listen, don't go out and do it if you didn't pray. But if you pray, don't be ticked off at God when he taps you on the shoulder. Oh God, raise up laborers, raise up workers. Oh God, intervene in these people's lives. Oh God. Yeah, yeah, there's somebody in need and I want you to meet it. Oh, I'll call Pastor Doug. I'll call the pastors, they'll do it. No, I want you to do it. This is your job. You're my follower. You're a disciple. Oh, man. Lord, I didn't know you were going to make me be the answer to my own prayer. Yeah, that's how it works. See, the human needs of Jesus' time and of our time are overwhelming. There are never enough workers. Have you noticed that? If, I don't know if there's anybody in this room that's a social worker or a therapist or a counselor, if you work in any area, maybe you're a, a caregiver, you know as well as I do that if you work in any area where you're working with people, the caseloads are overwhelming. There's never enough help. We need laborers in our time, 
right? Pastors are overwhelmed, right? Often with the needs just within their church and then in the community too. I can tell you, we're, we're constantly, there's too many. There's too many. If, if, if I had to be available for every need that came up, I would never sleep, never eat, never have a family life. That's just the reality. That's why we have a team of pastors. And even we're not enough to take care of the needs that come our way. People slip through the cracks. We fail. We miss it sometimes. We hear somebody's hurt because they didn't get followed up on. And it's like, sorry, we just, it's too much. That's why we need you. We need you. God needs you. Yeah, you say God doesn't need anything. Actually, that's true in his essence. He doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient, self-existent. But he has somehow chosen to partner with us in reaching humanity. And that's the wonder of it all. Amen? There are too many hurting, downcast people and not enough people to help them. Jesus' answer then and now is the same. Pray and then let him commission you to reach out to the people in your circle of influence. And let me tell you, that could be your job, could be your neighborhood, wherever you're interacting with people, God wants to commission you. Amen. Anybody here feel like maybe the Holy Spirit spoke to you today? All right, let's stand together, three of you. That's great. Praise the Lord. No, thank you for standing. We're going we're gonna to close in prayer, and I want to pray for you. I want to pray for our spiritual eyes today. When I was talking about seeing people with God's eyes, come on, stay with me. When I was talking about seeing people with God's eyes, how many of you felt like maybe the Lord was talking to you? You realized that maybe you haven't been seeing people through his eyes? I want to pray for us. I know that happens to me. In this last year, there have been times I haven't seen people with the eyes of God many times. So I want to pray that the Lord will open our eyes. So let's do that first, okay? If that's you, if you just want to do something symbolic, I believe it's more than symbolic, but if you just want to kind of put your hand on your eyes or near your eyes, and begin to pray for the Lord to open your eyes and give you a heart to see people the way He does. Now listen, when it happens, it's going to mess you up. There's going to be times it's going to break your heart. But it's really good. And it's powerful. And it's beautiful. So let's pray. Father, I ask you to open our eyes. In the name of Jesus, I ask you to strip off the calluses from our heart and our eyes. If we have developed a hard heart, a resistant heart to your voice, to the movements of your spirit in our life, Lord, I ask you to be the great surgeon, to be the great physician, and to reach down into us right now and do surgery and give us a heart transplant. I ask you to apply healing salve to our eyes. I ask you, Lord, to give us the ability to see people with your eyes. Holy Spirit, you indwell us. Look out through our eyes and see people the way you see them. And then show us what to do, what our actions should be. Help us, Lord, all of us in this room. I ask this in your name, Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, his face upon you, and give you peace. The Lord be with you. God loves you. Go with God. He goes with you. God bless you all.